0: Hello, and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and in this episode of The Ballpark, we're taking a look at monetary policy, and specifically, the power of the almighty dollar. Money, moolah, bread, dough, dosh, clams, bucks, coin. We get a lot of words of money, don't we? Probably because it's so important. It's hard to imagine how a piece of green paper, a dollar bill, can have such a significant impact on the global economy, but today, we'll decipher the laws, mechanisms, and institutions that define and govern the almighty dollar, and what that ultimately means to the rest of the world. Play ball. From, from 1783,
1: when the country really got its independence, through 1863, we did not have a national currency. Right? We did not have a
0: modern central bank until 1913. That's Jeff Frieden, a professor of government at Harvard University. When he stopped by the LSE recently, we talked with him about the past, present, and future of American monetary policy. Most of us probably don't think very much about the history of money. For most of us, it's always been there, and always will be. But the dollar, at least as we know it, is actually pretty young. For all intents and purposes, we did not
1: have modern federal fiscal policy until maybe the 1930s, probably more realistically the 1950s. So if you think about the three perquisites of a, an economic and monetary union, that is a common currency, a common central bank, and a fiscal union, the U.S. really didn't have those three things until the 1950s. That's a long time. Depends how you count. It took 80 or 150 or almost 200 years for the U.S. to develop a functioning economic and monetary union. And all through that period, it was hotly contested politically. Presidential election after presidential election were fought over whether we would have a single currency, whether we would have a modern central bank, what powers the federal government would have over fiscal policy. Those issues are still debated in the U.S. There are still some who would like to close the Fed, go back to the gold standard, reduce the role of the federal government in automatic stabilizers. So developing a common economic and monetary policy for a disparate union like the United States or the European Union is politically extremely challenging. There are, in some ways, as many differences among American states as there are among European countries. Not as, not quite as big in terms of per capita income, but a place like Texas or Louisiana or Wyoming is very different from a place like Massachusetts or New York or California. And it is still difficult for us as a union of very different states, to arrive at a common set of economic, monetary, financial, and fiscal policies, and it will always be different for the European, difficult for the European Union
0: as well. Difficulties aside, the U.S. does have a common set of fiscal policies, and its common currency, the dollar, is king, and not just in the U.S. but across the world as well.
2: You know, as the U- U.S. economy grew and became the uh, most important economy in the context of uh, uh, the international economic, uh, uh, international monetary system.
0: That's Gianluca Benigno, a professor of economics here at the LSE.
2: Then uh, you know the dollar uh, became also the the most uh, the most relevant currency, in which uh, most of the trades are are um, dominated.
0: And we can tell the dollar is dominant because of the role it plays in trade, people want to buy the most important things they need with them. And that makes people want to use more dollars rather than some other currency
2: and one key uh car- commodity in which uh, uh the dollar you know plays a uh, plays a big role is oil and uh, oh, most of the commodities actually are denominated in dollar so that's uh, that's why you know also the dollar has a, has a first of all has a big uh, uh, role in terms of uh uh trade but also as, a, as other important role as a, as a reserve currency.
0: So we'll come back to this idea of a reserve currency in a minute. But first, to understand the dollar's dominance, we need to understand what central banking is and why countries even have central banks. It's easy to think of money as something that just exists and just moves in between us. It actually does need a set of rules to govern it. Anyone who's lived in a country with high inflation can tell you that keeping the value of money stable is very important. And that's where a central bank comes in. Central banks are the biggest, most important banks that a country has. In the U.S., it's the Federal Reserve, which most people just call Fed. The Fed oversees commercial banks and is essentially in control of the currency, with its main focus on keeping inflation low. It exercises this control through measures like setting official interest rates, issuing money, and by setting rules on the amount of money banks need to hold in reserve. Think about it. If banks need to hang on to more money, then there's less of it sloshing around in the economy. But enough about central banks. Let's go back to the idea of a reserve currency.
2: What does it mean, a reserve currency? A reserve currency is a currency that uh, you know, uh, people want to have in case of uh, um, problems or turbulence in the international financial market because it's a currency that is widely accepted. So a
0: reserve currency is basically the denomination of money that's seen as the most stable, the most reliable valuation of money. So if you see economic instability in the EU or political unrest in China, you know that your money invested as dollars is not going to be completely devalued by any of those factors. People know the dollar isn't going to collapse overnight. With America's economic and political instability, sizable debt, and occasional threats to default, why is the dollar still the currency that most financial institutions and countries trust? Why is it still the world's reserve currency? Here's Jeff Frieden again.
1: Well, it reminds me of two things. The first is um, what we sometimes call the first rule of wing walking. You know, the wing walkers were those guys back in the 1920s who would go out in the wings of biplanes and walk as the planes were flying through the air. Not something I would want to do. But anyway, the first rule of wing walking apparently is don't let go of something unless you have something else to hold on to. So as applied to reserve currencies... You know, yes, the dollar is the worst of all reserve currencies, except for all the others. What are you going to get out of? Are you going to divest yourself of dollars and grab on to the extraordinary euro, since it's in such great shape? Or the yen, since Japan is doing so well? Or the renminbi, uh, which is not an international currency, for all intents and purposes? I, the reality is that the U.S. dollar, is I won't say it's the only game in town, but it remains the safe haven. We saw that in 2008 when the world's markets froze up and people were were running for cover. What's the cover they ran to? They ran to the US dollar. They also ran to the Swiss franc, but I mean there's only so many Swiss francs in the world. Not everybody can pile into the Swiss franc or it would, you know, go up a hundred times in value. And what makes the dollar more attractive as a reserve currency? What makes it more reliable? What makes the dollar reliable or relatively reliable? I think it is the depth and breadth of our financial markets, the general sense that the Fed is reliable, that the Fed is not going to embark on some crazy path. People are concerned about the state of our politics, which is to say the least, you know, unsettled and unsettling. The government shutdowns and the debates over sequestration and all of those things. The fact that we have Uh, a divided government and lots and lots of controversies it's it's disturbing at some level but you know our founding fathers designed a system of government of checks and balances that imparts a tremendous status quo bias to policy it makes it very very difficult to change things rapidly and from the standpoint of a reserve currency that's not a bad thing right yeah, sure, the Republicans can shut down the government, but if they do, they're going to pay a price for it, so they don't do it very often. Yeah, sure, the Congress can threaten to dissolve the Fed or take us back to the gold standard, but the chances of that happening are very, very slim. So, yes, there are lots and lots of political worries and lots and lots of strange political beasts arising on the horizon in the U.S., and... and, and Uh, sentiments that are hard to fathom and would probably be dangerous to america's international monetary and financial position but the reality is that american monetary and financial policy has been very stable very reliable and very predictable for a very long
0: time so the dollar is a great reserve currency because of factors from within the u.s But what about when we have to go outside of the u.s or want to spend our dollars on stuff from overseas i might have dollars but you might have pounds or euros. This is where exchange rates come into play.
2: You, you have to think about exchange rate as a relative, um, in terms of relative concepts. So, you know, you cannot just talk about the dollar as it, as it stands. You talk about, uh, you know, you always talk about the dollar-euro exchange rate. You talk about the dollar-pound exchange rate. You talk about the dollar-yen exchange rate. And uh, uh, that's what matters, is this uh, ratio, this uh, relative uh, um, power of one currency versus the other. And that fluctuates, of course, over time in based on uh, economic condition of uh, the, the Japanese economy versus the U.S. economy or the Euro-area economy versus the U.S. economy. So these are just uh, nominal values. Uh, so, you know, you can uh, you can have uh, an exchange rate of uh, uh, $100 per euro or uh, $10, $10 per euro but what matters is that this is, uh, you know, eventually changes over time, not just the, the, the relative value per se.
0: Anyone who's traveled outside of the U.S. has exchanged dollars for euros, pounds, yen, pesos, or any other currency. But how are exchange rates set?
2: You know, there are various factors that uh, determine the exchange rate. And uh, especially short term fluctuations uh, might be affected by um, factors that might not matter maybe in the long run. Uh, but one important uh, determinant of uh, exchange rate movements are uh, interest rates.
0: Sidebar. Gianluca is talking about the interest rates that central banks set to influence inflation rates, remember? It's the cost of borrowing, or on the other side, the return on investment. So when returns are higher, people want to buy more investments. So they buy more dollars, which means the price of a dollar, the exchange rate, goes up.
2: And in particular, interest rates or expectation about what. Uh, the interest rates will be following monetary policy decisions by uh, central banks. So uh, what determines the movements uh, in the interest rates? What, Why the central bank, why the Fed is increasing rates?
0: In December 2015, we saw the Fed raise interest rates for the first time in seven years. Why did they do this? And what impact does it have on the rest of the world? I think the Fed probably had little
1: choice. The Fed... People talk about the the, the Fed's dual mandate, the typical dual mandate being full employment and price stability. Uh, Now a third mandate has been added, which is financial stability. But the other kind of dual mandate the Fed has is it's responsible for domestic economic, monetary, and economic conditions. But because the dollar is the world's reserve currency, in some sense, the Fed is the world's central bank. And so the Fed has to take into account not just domestic monetary conditions, but also international monetary conditions. I think the Fed knew full well that raising interest rates in the U.S. was going to cause difficulties in much of the rest of the world. And it has. But I also think that the Fed was well aware of the fact that if it did not raise interest rates in the U.S., it would be ignoring domestic economic conditions. The recovery is well underway. We are at or near full employment. There's no sign of inflation, but interest rates are at historic lows. And I think that uh, a continuation of the effectively zero interest rates in the U.S. was not justifiable on domestic economic grounds. So the Fed is engaged in a very, very difficult dance. It needs to adopt a monetary policy that is appropriate to the U.S. and its conditions, but that is also appropriate to the role of the U.S. in the world economy and the world's economic conditions. And because in some sense the world and the U.S. are going in different directions, that's not easy. It's like trying to drive a car that's going in two different directions. If, the car, if all four wheels are going in the same direction, then, then you turn the steering wheel and you go. But if two of the wheels are going to the right and two are going to the left, what are you going to do? So I think the Fed was faced with a difficult choice. The fact is that they raised interest rates only very slightly. There are some indications that they will not continue to raise despite the fact that they said they were going to because of the international effects. I think this just highlights the extent to which globalization has changed the way in which all central banks, but especially the Fed, has to operate. The Fed now, they will not say this explicitly because it's not part of their mandate, but the Fed now has to take into account, very centrally, the effects of its policies on the rest of the world because those effects will eventually
0: come back to hurt the U.S. as well. So whether we're talking about exchange rates or interest rates, the dollar and U.S. monetary policy impacts the rest of the world. And if this discussion of central banking and reserve currencies is a little too 30,000 feet for you, we can also see a very concrete example of how the dollar and its stability impacts people around the world. Some countries, because of political and economic instability, have very unstable currencies. Zimbabwe, for example, had incredibly high inflation in the early 2000s, with notes of 50 billion Zimbabwean dollars or more in circulation. In countries like this, we often see the US dollar being used as the official or unofficial currency.
2: So in that case, uh, what happens is that uh, people prefer to trade in uh, foreign currency, and uh, given the stability of the value of the dollar, the dollar serves as an anchor currency. Uh, you know, a currency in which um, sometimes most of the transactions are denominated. And uh, y- you see some uh, phenomenon like the one you mentioned before of dollarization. Sometimes dollarization is uh, an official choice. So a country completely give up the possibility of printing its own money. And that's, for example, the case of Panama. Panama is an economy that is completely dollarized by an official choice. But in other cases, uh, you know, there are dollarization that is not uh, official, but it happens at different levels. So, for example, there is financial dollarization because uh, deposits uh, are, uh, are denominated in dollars. So, if you go to a bank, you can <laughs> deposit in dollars. And there sometimes there is also dollarization that occurs because uh, trading a certain type of goods uh, uh, is, in, is in dollars. For example, in Peru, uh, you know, luxury goods are uh, priced in dollars. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's what happens. And that's r- as I said, there is uh, um, is a is a symptom of uh, some instability in the local currency, and that's why you know that uh, also the dollar has uh, this international status and <laughs> is uh, uh, sometimes is used in uh, in many many countries as uh, an official uh, currency for, for trading. So many people accept dollar, even if that is not the official uh, uh, currency. And so even outside of those countries that use the dollar, it's clear that
0: the dollar and, more broadly, U.S. monetary policy impact and often guide the entire global market. Now I'm joined by my co-hosts, Denise Barron and Sophie Donzeman, and we're going to talk about the almighty dollar. So I'm going to take the host's prerogative and start out by, by talking about what I thought was really interesting, was that something that struck me was that Exchange rates can actually often fluctuate through currency speculation, and it's. I sort of makes me think that money isn't just money anymore. It used to be, before financialization, you paid money and you got paid money, and that was it. But now you can make money by trading money, and you can affect economies by trading money. But you're only trading the money, the dollars themselves. It's kind of weird. This idea that you can. So George Soros has, you know, took down whole economies by by shorting the currency. And the idea that you can do that just by using as a store of value is kind of very strange.
3: It's sort of like a a variation on the saying that the perception of power is power. Sort of like the perception of value either creates or destroys value then. It's not so simple as this is how much a dollar is worth. This is how much a dollar actually can, how much you can purchase with a dollar. It's more about all right, well, what do other people think about the dollar? What do they think about the people who are holding those dollars? What do they think about the institutions who regulate the dollar? There's so much more speculation,
4: like you said, involved in it. I think that also makes the rules of the game a lot more complicated. And before, like you were saying, Chris, when it was just simple transactions, we didn't have things that we have now that caused the financial crisis, things like moral hazard and these loopholes and fancy terms like packaging and splicing and all these kind of derivative things. And that leads to a lot of human error. It leads to a lot of kind of flexibility that currency previously didn't have that then now in 2016, we're still kind of feeling the effects of what that did in 2008. And just, it's a lot more, as you guys were saying, complicated than um, changing hands.
0: Yeah, and I think for me it's really I don't know if "polarized" is the right word, but you have a whole bunch of people, sort of on one end and this one side, and this is sort of what's coming through with with Bernie Sanders, and actually to some extent Donald Trump, people who earn a dollar and they spend a dollar, or and sometimes the difference between when they can, whether or not they can feed their children, is the dollar they earn or they spend, and for them, the dollar is instrumental; it's a, it's a means to get goods and services, uh, as it always has been. And then on the other end, you have currency traders and financiers who are trading. Millions and billions of, of, of dollars, and that the money has been divorced from the idea of you know you get you get money because you're paid, and it's become completely divorced from that. And so the lived experience of someone who is like earning a wage compared to someone who's just literally using other people's money to make more money is mm-hmm. completely completely split. And there's it's very difficult to see you know, how could someone who's down who's just uh, sort of a low wage understand the use of that. And it's just not. I think it's a good metaphor for the way that society's kind of gotten to.
3: And it's completely wild to me that the entire complicated system that we function in right now, and the the rules of the game and all the different factors that go into it, all evolved from the system, you know, a couple hundred years ago when we didn't have a common currency in the U.S. I mean that that whole history of the dollar from uh, Jeff Frieden kind of blew my mind because I didn't ever think about a time in the U.S. when the country existed as a as a functioning sovereign country, but without a common currency. And so a dollar was worth different things in different states early on. When you went to Indiana and you were buying something with a dollar, like the Indiana dollar, was worth a different amount and had different value than if you went to Connecticut. I mean, that's nuts to me. And now we've gotten to a place where not only we got over that hump of, uh, of creating a common currency, a central bank, and then on top of that, this entire bizarre jungle network that has evolved that still has the dollar at the heart of it.
0: I mean, I think what, what, what is, what I, what's important to remember is that the U.S. is a currency union in the way that the Eurozone is. Hmm. The, U, the US is a, I mean, the U.S. is a union as well, but it's also a currency union. It's, it's sort of fitting different economies together. And a lot of countries have tried currency unions before, like Australia and New Zealand looked, well, they didn't try one, but they, they've looked at one. I know they wanted to do one in, uh, in South America as well at one point. So a lot of people have sort of tried this, and it hasn't been that successful. But this is not you say, okay, you know, this is the – it took, you know, many, many decades to, to, to get moving on. Well, let's move kind of past just the, the currency aspects. Yes.
4: Yeah, so um, when I was listening to Jeffrey Frieden's interview, it was funny because there's that saying that something's not worth the money it's printed on. And um, right now in the news, we're kind of seeing that that's exactly what we're talking about is the money it's printed on. And um, right now there's the debate whether Harriet Tubman should be on the $20 bill to replace Andrew Jackson. Um, and when I thought about this in kind of the context of the podcast, this makes the dollar almighty in a different sense, that we're kind of recognizing past historic achievements and, again, the situations that led to that. But then also kind of to counter that, um, The dollar is then not so almighty when we consider in a global context and how many other currencies have had women on bills way longer than the United States has and why um, for Harriet Tubman it's still very much a debate. Um, A lot of people say that you can't replace a president, that perhaps we should create a different bill for Harriet Tubman. Um,
0: The $7
4: bill. (laughs) $15 bill. Um, And that then kind of highlights that other topics we've discussed every step that the united states takes it still has a long way to go um and they kind of say one step forward two steps back and it's it's tough but in the sense paper in the sense money really represents something bigger than its value yeah money Maybe. is a cultural current like the actual banknotes
3: are a cultural artifact exactly uh i was when i was when I was doing this, I was also revising for a stats exam, and uh, I learned that on a former version of the German Mark, when that still existed, they had a statistician on one of their, on their banknotes, the guy who did a lot of theories on normal distributions. And then I remembered how uh, the, the French franc used to have um, the author of Le Petit Prince on there, yeah. and it had a little, one of the little cartoons of the prince standing on his little planet, and now, you know, we have this whole thing in the U.S. about having a woman on one of the, one of our banknotes. And it reminds me of how we have had a woman before on currency in the U.S. Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony and Sacagawea. Hmm. It, was um, dollar, no, it was on the dollar, though. That was on the dollar coin. The dollar coin, which was a total flop. Yeah, no one, yeah no one cares about mm-hmm. the dollar People coin. were stockpiling yeah. dollar coins because they, they saw them as collector's items or novelties or something like that, not as usable currency so people would get dollar coins at machines where you would buy different train tickets or something like that you get dollar coins as a result and I remember my parents sort of keeping them away or giving them as little gifts or something like that but it wasn't something that you actually would bring out to the
4: store and use like you do here with the Mm. pound the two pound coins also perhaps I'm reading too much into it but like a dollar isn't much you know we have five twenty fifty why why are all these higher values Occupied by men, like why is it such a struggle to get a woman on something that represents something like more? Benjamins. Exactly, something more than just a dollar.
0: So, so this is a question from from someone who hasn't spent much time in the states. Do people care about who is on the money?
4: I think so. Okay, it's
0: just that I think here, if you ask people who was on like the five pound note or the ten pound note, I think most people probably wouldn't be able to. They would say the Queen because you know the Queen is on all our notes, but you know. Do, do people know? I mean, you talk about the Benjamins and, and things like that. And...
3: Yeah, I think they do. I mean, I remember when, when this whole debate began, uh, I think it was, you know, the treasury announced that they were going to be replacing Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill and uh, primarily, you know, to put a woman on a, a banknote. And there was quite a bit of, of discussion around that. It was definitely a social media little high-water mark of conversation around currency. I mean, I, and I pers- I do, I care about who's on there. I mean, Andrew Jackson is a perfect president to get rid of because he has sort of a checkered past, to put it kindly. Why not honor some people who look a little bit more like the rest of the population? I think that's sure. a very important cultural way to memorialize and value people. Sure. So there's, there's another side to the dollar that, Sophie and I both seem to latch on to in terms of the, the global importance of the dollar. Mm-hmm. And this goes beyond just its role as, as a reserve currency or as an anchor currency, which th- that distinction is very interesting, I think we could dive into. But just how the policies that uh, the Fed are implementing right now, the decisions that they're making, they're no longer looking at just the U.S. economy. They have to look at the entire world. There are implications globally when it comes to the, the Fed's decisions to raise interest rates or or anything,
4: really. Which really relates back to our previous episode on U.S. foreign policy um, and the kind of slow realization that nothing happens in a vacuum. Um, what's that saying, that when the United States sneezes, the world catches a cold?
0: Yeah, but I mean, what I thought was interesting, what Friedman was saying, is he sort of said, well you know, the, the, the Fed has to do this, but it's kind of begrudgingly and they won't really act, they won't kind of acknowledge it to anyone else. It's kind of like, oh yeah, we're really big now, but oops. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's not, they're not making the sense, I mean, they do make policy for the rest of the world, but they don't, they, they can't act, at least as far as where they can act like they are, but they obviously have to take it. So it's kind of a weird fine line, uh, I think.
3: Yeah, they have a, a very clear directive on yeah. one hand, but then they have to keep these global implications sort
4: of on the back burner but still in mind which kind of works both ways because um i remember when ben bernanke came to the LSC and he spoke to the u.s center um it was easy to attribute stuff that didn't go well to those other factors Mm. and so when you're saying that the fed have to bear everything else in mind and they have to bear the fed in mind it's lends itself well to kind of responsibility shirking and when stuff doesn't go well it's out of your hands and when stuff does go well
0: failure is an orphan where success is a (laughs) thousand dollars.
3: yeah
4: yeah so back to the role of the dollar as
3: a reserve currency as the primary reserve currency and then also the the sort of phenomenon of the dollar functioning as an anchor currency in other economies in other countries that either don't use their own currency as much or officially use the dollar it sort of seemed to me like those were two distinctions in the same kind of realm, you know, that those two phenomenons, the using the dollar in those two ways, both relate back to the dollar stability and reliability. That the reason why it's used as this anchor currency, why it's used as a currency in other countries is because you know that the dollar is not going to fluctuate. It's not going to collapse one day. It's not going to insanely inflate the next day. And then that's the same reasons why you use it as a reserve currency, too, is because you know if you have your money in, in, a, in dollars that tomorrow the U.S. government isn't going to completely collapse and then that money is basically useless, yeah, valueless. It's a, it's a
0: politically stable economy. And that, that's the case as well to a, a slightly lesser extent with the U.K. I mean, if you look at the pound's value, the pound is actually worth more than the dollar, which is always kind of fascinating, even though the...
4: And frustrated know, me. And frustrated
0: <laughs> even though the U.K. is the, is the world's sort of fifth-largest economy. But it sort of speaks to this idea that, you know, there are interests in these countries that want to keep the... I mean, the U.S. is not going to go and, you know, bring in single-payer healthcare and bring in socialism and massively increase the national debt. In fact, very few Western countries change their political point of view and therefore change what will happen to their debt situation or their financial system overnight. And because there's all these entrenched interests kind of saying, let's just keep on this, this route and maybe some changes you make will be incremental. Because what does happen is it people say, oh, you know, if we do go down this other route, the markets will squeal, mm. there'll be currency flights, dogs and cats will live together, right. you know, all these kind of horrible things. And so there is this kind of these forces, both internally and externally, that are kind of working to kind of keep that status quo of the dollar being being good. So it's kind of mutually enforcing. People know it's a reserve currency, and so they, they kind of put in pressure and political pressure to to, to, to be there and this to this is stable. the whole
3: the cycle of politics and economics yeah. and politics and economics and the influence of all of them going in this bizarre horrible confusing little cycle
0: we'd love you to join the conversation on twitter tweet at lse underscore ballpark to share your thoughts on the almighty dollar or on any of our episodes in fact We'll feature your thoughts later this season in an Extra Innings podcast. So we've established that the dollar is kind of a big deal, both at home and overseas. But its economic power can also be a strong mechanism for social change. In the last 30 years, we've seen a dramatic shift in public opinion towards support for gay rights. What's called the pink dollar has played a huge role in this shift. We spoke to someone who's an expert in the history of sexuality. My name is Chris Parks. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the London School of Economics. What do we mean when we talk about the pink dollar or the gay dollar? And maybe you could tell us a bit about about the history
5: behind the the concept as well. Well, traditionally, when people referred to the pink dollar, they meant the economic power of people who identified uh, as LGBT, although it's worth bearing in mind very uh, early off that uh, when we mean, when people have explored this, they really have meant uh, gay men, uh, particularly gay white men in the American context. Uh, and so people have explored the ways that uh, gay rights movements have applied their economic power, uh, whether through activity like uh, you know, uh, patronizing certain businesses, or through boycotts, through um, specifically not patronizing certain businesses. Uh, that was particularly prominent uh, uh, in the nineteen seventies. You know, boycotts of Florida orange juice during the Anita Bryant uh, "Save Our Children" campaign, and and other such things. Lately, though, uh, some scholars uh, have begun to redefine the pink dollar to mean any activity that's associated with sort of sex and specifically uh, LGBT people uh, in the public market. And so you look at people who have profited by uh, scaremongering about gay people or uh, looking at the economic effects of um, anti-gay legislation and anti-gay um, advocates uh, in the uh, in the consumer market.
0: Can you give us sort of an overview of, of how, how powerful is the pink dollar? Well, I wish I could give you
5: specific figures, uh, but I think it's... It's evident, it's certainly in the last few weeks, uh, just how powerful the economic impact of gay people can be, or, and I suppose it is gay people, gay white men, really. Uh, in the passage uh, of these, or the threatened passage of these various religious freedom restoration acts in uh, many states across the United States recently, uh, you've seen a great response from uh, gay people uh, or from LGBT rights groups in... Uh, trying to pressure these states not to pass them by threatening to boycott, by, um, by, and by applying pressure to businesses, uh, you know, through the market, through market forces, to rem- to effectively uh, get them to uh, not pay, uh, not to bring their businesses to these states, to pull out investment that they have in these states. Uh, most prominently, you've seen things like you know, threatening to move. Uh, the Super Bowl from Houston 2017, if Texas passes one particular bill. Recently with North Carolina passing their, um, uh, it's actually not just a religious freedom restoration bill, it's more of a broader anti-gay bill. You've seen PayPal uh, recently announced that they will no longer, uh, or they will move some of their business out of Char- uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and to somewhere else in the country. So those are some of the ways that, the pink dollar has manifested itself those are some of the ways that LGBT people can uh, apply them apply or pursue their rights uh, through market forces through uh, the application of economic pressure rather than sort of direct action or political pressure
0: so that would be sort of negative power mm-hmm. and then when you're talking about
5: positive power how does that sort of come into it in positive power, well, you can see that in the sorts of businesses that, uh, gays, uh, that LGBT people want to uh, want to patronize. Sometimes this is actually in response to negative power. You, know, you saw it around um, 2014 with the run-up to the Sochi Olympics. Uh, a lot of people were calling for boycotts of Russian vodka because Russia had a terrible gay rights uh, record and they were... Uh, and, and LGBT people, uh, uh, rights groups in the United States wanted to uh, make the Russians hurt for that. And so as a result, you saw an attempted decline in sales of Russian vodka and then a spike in Swedish vodka or Finnish vodka or some of the other brands. So why have states recently and historically gotten into trouble over this sort of stuff? Well, the recent ones can be traced, I think, uh, directly to the Obergefell v. Hodges ruling in 2015. That was the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, the five to four decision that uh, effectively overturned all uh, state bans on same-sex marriage, and that was, in a lot of ways, the kind of the last stand of a what you could call now a previous generation of anti-gay legislation and anti-gay activism uh, for decades, uh, especially since the launch of the, of the campaign to, to um, enact gay marriage, to achieve, achieve gay marriage, and that was in the late '80s and '90s. Uh, for decades, these anti-gay forces were kind of winning on that uh, uh, on that issue. If they were talking about the definition of marriage and marriage being the union of one man and one woman, which is, I think the uh, exact wording in the Defense of Marriage Act from 1996. Uh, if they were talking about that, they were generally winning. They were achieving their legislation. They were striking down laws, but that began to change in 2010, or certainly after uh, 2008 with a a rather spectacular victory of gay marriage ban in California under Proposition 8. Um, After that, anti-gay activists began to lose the debate over marriage. And in a shockingly short space of time, just case after case, um, vote after vote, they lost over and over and over again with almost no break. And twenty fifteen was the last time or, or was you know the, the final word on it. It is this it was the Supreme Court after all, I and mean, there was really no way to fight back against that. Because they lost on that debate the definition of marriage, the people who are just trying to withhold gay rights or or stop gay rights from advancing have had to change the terms of the debate. And as um, history has shown when uh, uh, or as, as has happened before in American history when uh, this sort of thing happens often religion becomes the new justification for a now outlawed or a now socially unacceptable form of discrimination uh, and so I think that's where a lot of the religious freedom restoration acts are coming from and I think uh, that's actually where you get a lot of the kinds of legislation that's been proposed and in some cases enacted in the last few years um, I'm thinking particularly of the, the anti transgender bills in places like North Carolina, these bills that would force uh, transgender people to use the bathrooms and the public facilities that correspond to the sex they were assigned to their birth rather than their present gender identity. So, okay, so that's where it's come from in the, in the short term. In the long term, uh, I think some of these bills are. You know, t- tapping into long-standing social and cultural cleavages in the United States, the uh, the role of the religious right in pushing these sorts of things is quite prominent, and they have you know, in many ways been in eclipse for the last 10 years, but they seem to have revived somewhat in the last few years with the uh, astonishing success of gay rights uh, or of LGBT uh, legislation. As far as the trouble that the states have gotten into, uh, that's come from... I think it's a byproduct of the changed landscape in which these debates are unfolding. Uh, whereas two or three decades ago, if you passed a law that was trying to restrict the rights of LGBT people and LGBT people tried to resist it, there wasn't really all that much pressure they could apply. Uh, there was direct activism, but uh, a lot of that often didn't work and it's, uh, it could only be sustained for so long. Now, however, LGBT people have achieved a level of, equ- of, of equality and a level of assimilation that means that they have a great deal more wealth to throw around themselves, and they are more deeply integrated into the economic systems, uh, into businesses, into, you know, into legislatures themselves, so that there are more avenues to apply pressure. And as, in terms of the economic side of it, uh, you've got, you know, gay people, and uh, I for the, almost exclusively, we are talking about gay men here, uh, who are extraordinarily wealthy, sometimes in positions of extraordinary power uh, within specific organizations. You think of, uh, you know, Tim Cook at Apple, um, Peter Thiel, of man who founded PayPal, who's now decided to move out of North Carolina. So now you have, I think, a constituency of people who have enough economic power and enough political traction to be able to make anti-LGBT legislators suffer uh, for pursuing goals which 20 or 30 years ago they would have been able to achieve with some degree of confidence that there would be no real negative repercussions for themselves. Money has definitely accelerated the advance of LGBT rights but in terms of the hard work, in terms of the the really the difficult job of organizing and, and, and activating d- different means of, of applying political pressure in terms of um, resisting the, the oppression and, or, or combating the indifference of government institutions and corporate institutions and religious institutions, a lot of that has been done by people who are not uh, economically well-off and people who are not in places of economic privilege arguably in all of the major events in LGBT history, if you look at the Stonewall riots, if you looked at ACT UP and the AIDS activism of that uh, era, and even maybe in the the fight for gay marriage, looking at the activation of youth and uh, a much broader political coalition in support of it, you do see that it's been, in many cases, the most marginalized people who have been at the forefront, and that it's everybody else that's catching up. Mm -hmm.
0: We've come to the point in the show called I Predict a Riot, where we give our predictions and prognostications about the future. So um, I'm going to go first. And so my, my thought is that, and it's based on stuff that, that, that we've seen in London, so there's an increasing focus on sustainability and community resilience, and I think a lot of that came out of the Great Recession. And so I think we're going to see more local currencies in the U.S. and elsewhere. I was looking today, and it looks like there's dozens of local currencies all over the show, and so here they have something called the Brixton Pound. So just a way of spending your own money locally and making the dollar work for you uh, around your, where your neighbors are. Hmm,
4: okay. Um, I'll go next. I spoke about Tubman earlier, and I'm gonna talk about it again. But I think with Tubman on the bill and Janet Yellen, who was a former LSE professor, um, and she was appointed the first female head of the Fed in 2014. I think that we might be seeing the dawn of a decade where women finally start playing a greater role in economics and finance. And I think that's a great thing. Agreed. I, Agreed. my my <laughs> prediction
3: is a little bit more specific to the value of the dollar uh, in relation to the pound, which is something that plagues my personal finances. Um, whenever I'm moving my money from dollars to pounds to pay my LSE tuition, pay my rent, buy food, anything, I'm always checking the exchange rate and in the last year or so, maybe a little bit less, the dollar has been doing great. And so I'm predicting that it will continue to do very well. The dollar will continue to be relatively strong against the pound, at least until UK voters make a decision about their membership in the EU, which is coming up in late June. So until then, I will be pleasantly surprised when I transfer my funds.
4: Like yeah.
3: that yeah. cool. That's
0: All right, it's time to wrap up this episode of The Ballpark. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Sophie Donzelman and Denise Barron, our interviewees, Jeff Frieden and Gianluca Benigno, and our contributor, Chris Parks. The Ballpark was produced by Denise Barron with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. You should check them out. They're brilliant. And here's the legal bit. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Centre or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore barpark or send us an email at uscentre at lse.ac.uk. You can also send us an audio message of up to one minute with your comments. We'll feature your opinions, tweets, emails and audio recordings on an Extra Innings podcast later this season. Be sure to tune in next time. We'll be talking about American politics, participation, and polling. And look out for an extra innings that features our full interview with Jeff Frieden, who you heard from today. Thanks for listening.